Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Uh, my name's Gavi. I'm here with my BFF, Sadie Carpenter, cult expert, cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter, the greatest cult expert, cult survivor of oh, all time. Um, yeah, I don't know if I would say that. Uh, you are Jesus, literally Jesus. No, you're not. I, I don't know what we're talking about. Today we're uh, talking about... Do you want to start <laughs> over? Brain. Yeah, let's start over. Okay, um, let's do that. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Gabrielle Hakowen. I'm here with cult expert, cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter, the one and only Sadie Carpenter, uh, my BFF. Hello. Cult expert, cult survivor. We, How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty okay. We have a highly requested episode today. I'm really excited for this. I'm. Uh, this is one that we've been looking forward to doing for over a year, two years, three years, maybe. I don't know. This is probably one, another one that was on our early list of like what episodes to do. But we're talking about Hobby Lobby today. Yeah. And this may, I don't know, this may be the episode that uh, launched a thousand ships. <laughs> how, how, how do you mean? I, I think this episode is going to spawn a couple more episodes down the line. Just oh, a, okay. a gut I've... feeling that I have. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, like there is because when we started looking into Hobby Lobby, because uh, Hobby Lobby, David Green, who's the founder, the CEO of Hobby Lobby, he has his fingers in a lot of pies. So he's involved with like groups that want to do Christian nationalism in the United States. He's involved with 
IBLP. He's involved with international smuggling of uh, ancient artifacts and like black market trade of ancient, just like a lot of very weird things. But we also have some very specific episodes that we have planned out that we cannot talk about for reasons of secret secrets are no fun. Secret secrets hurt someone. Uh, the, only, the only people that these secrets are going to hurt are people who are being fraudsters. Yeah, don't do fraud, uh, Jen Shaw. We, we will come for you. <laughs> it, uh, if you come for me, I will send Jesus after you. That's not Jen Shaw. That's a different Real Housewife. And we're going to talk about Real Housewives soon. Um, but before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, then there are numerous things that you can do to support us. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving eden podcast you can join our subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash eden exodus and our facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash eden exodus as always share this show with your friends your family your coworkers, your enemies your casual acquaintances go knock on doors and tell them that they should listen to the leaving eden podcast and that if they accept the leaving eden podcast into their life then they will get a one-way ticket to uh sadie's chocolate house sp- or my spaghetti heaven um and okay. <laughs> don't do that please don't do that or if you do that please uh i i don't say that i suggested it to you because i really think that you shouldn't this is a disclaimer um unless you really want to and i wouldn't say no but i am saying no <laughs> but sadie do you want to thank our i gave it all and our faith promise missions to your patrons today would you like the honor of doing that all right, our I gave it all to your patrons are Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Mosley, and Todd Dale on behalf of his cult survivor wife, Madeline Antrim. Thank you guys so much. Our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons are Alex P., Ali Allen, Anisha Patel, Autumn of Our Discontent, Brittany, Krissa Walker, Crystal Patterson, Dan the Trans Man, Dora J., Eleanor Donahue, Enchanted Fairy, Hannah Ross, Hannah Montana, Who's Your Ex Fundy? Oh, that's a new one. Welcome. Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Callen, Jen Kuharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kat Henwood, Kate Wee, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Maggie Fink, Marlena Stuve, Marcia Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arndt, Rob the Methodist, Chartuterie, Stephanie Johnson, Steve and Amy, Susie, Tara McNamara, and Wes the Cowboy. Thank you guys so much for subscribing to our Faith Promise Mission and I Gave It All Patreon tiers. We we really don't know what we would do without you. You guys are fantastic. We also want to say thank you to everybody who supports us on Patreon or in whatever way you support the show. Even listening to the show is beneficial to us because um it not only do we you know get the clicks but we also get the 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 algorithm also recommends it to other people uh who listen to the same shows as you so even by just listening to the show you're Mm -hmm. supporting us and making it possible for us to make more episodes for you thank you guys so much public service announcement 
If you listen to our podcast on an iPhone or an Apple device, your downloads may have gotten paused because of the new iOS update. So it might be worth a check if that applies to you. And apparently this is just like a thing across the entire podcast industry. You told me that it's because of the the new iOS version for specifically iPhones pauses downloads on podcasts sooner. So if a person sits out a couple episodes, goes on vacation, there's a couple episodes with triggering content that they skip, whatever, take a break for whatever reason, downloads might not resume automatically. Yeah. And I mean, if you're, I guess if you're listening to this and that's probably not uh, (laughs) an issue that you're having right now because you're listening to this episode, but yeah, that's basically what's been going on and it's been across the entire industry. Uh, But that's okay. Well, it's good. it's good for people to know in general because somebody might wake up on a Monday and think, where's the new Leaving Eden? What happened? And not know that it's just because their downloads got paused and it didn't download automatically. No, it's actually kind of messed up because Apple can just decide that they're going to do an update to iOS and then they'll... They what essentially they're doing is they're essentially depressing the prices of ads across the entire industry by like 30% which is nuts that they can just say, yeah, we're going to do this and not really because we want to save space on people's iPhones, which I guess makes sense. But also, I guess uh, companies have been overpaying for ads by like 30% for years and years and years and years and years. And every time they change it, it just seems like it like actually cuts down. So I don't know actually how many people are listening to the show, but I hope it's a lot. I hope it's uh, uh, you guys do that. Uh, and I hope the people who listen are having a good time. Quality over quantity. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, and PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In many episodes, we'll mention at least a few of these topics, but we avoid any graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling. And if we do believe that detail is necessary to the story, we give our audience a heads up before we go into any kind of detail on any of these topics or anything else that we know can be triggering. This episode may be a little bit light on the triggers. Um, We are going to be very briefly mentioning uh, anti-Semitism and transphobia and um, religiously motivated birth control prevention. And we'll very, very lightly be touching on topics like Christian nationalism, That, but this one may be a little bit lighter. I hope it is. <laughs> Should we get into the history of Hobby Lobby? Yes. Okay. We're, ta- we're going to talk. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to start with a short biography of David Green, who is the founder of Hobby Lobby. Uh, David Green was born in 1941 in Emporia, Kansas, but he grew up in Atlas, Oklahoma, which is a small town in southwestern Oklahoma near the border with Texas. His mother, his father, uh, both active in the ministry. His father was a pastor of several different small churches during his upbringing. According to an interview that uh, David Green gave with the Jesus Calling podcast, uh, He said that his father never pastored a church of more than 100 people, and he was inspired in his life by the way that his parents devoted their lives to the church and to the ministry. So when he was a junior in high school, he started working at a five-and-dime store in Atlas called McClellan's. Uh, And through that job, he fell in love with working retail, and he knew that this is what he wanted to do with his life, was to work in retail, work in stores, open stores. Having... 
worked in retail personally, I think that this man is insane, but maybe it was just a different time. Maybe Oklahoma in the fifties is more friendlier than all of the places where I've worked retail. (laughs) Well, a Forbes magazine write-up said that he fell in love with the romantic idea of buying something for 10 cents and selling it for 20. Is that a romantic idea? I don't know. To David Green, apparently it is. Yeah, that seems like kind of a... I mean, I guess like markups is how people make money, sure. But like, I don't know. Like the the point is of, of his story where he was talking about working at a five and dime when he started was that the point of him telling that story was that he was like, and even when I worked at the five and dime and I made x amount of money i still tithed whatever percent on whatever it was that i made and all through my life i tithed money and my parents tithed money and you know and, but during this time uh working when he was working at mcclellan's uh david green met his wife uh barbara and they got married and in 1970 david green sec- uh, secured a 600 dollars loan to start a business his business was assembling and selling miniature picture frames And by 1972, he had saved enough money from that business to open like a small craft store. So he started basically a business in his garage where he would buy just the pieces to make small picture frames. And then he put them together and would sell them to people. And then, you know, he opened a craft store. The craft store was a 300 square foot store in Oklahoma City. And this store became the first Hobby Lobby. In 1974, he opened another store in Tulsa, Oklahoma, eventually adding five more stores in Oklahoma and then expanding outside of Oklahoma in the next decade. So Hobby Lobby has continued expanding within the United States and now has more than 1,000 locations and 43,000 employees. David Green has since amassed a net worth of around $13 billion. Wow. David Green... Yeah. I know. A lot of money. David Green is a noted proponent of the prosperity gospel. In 2017, he co-authored a book titled giving it all away and getting it all back again according to green paying tithe has allowed god to open up doorways for him professionally and allowed him to enrich himself and then tithe on this money and give it back to god that concept is something that i heard a ton growing up in the ifb uh the the ifb fundy phrase is you can't outgive god so whatever hmm. you give you're going to get it back I would argue that perhaps he hasn't given it all away since he has amassed a net worth of around $13 billion. But I have a little sidebar question here because we're going to get into a lot of shady stuff, the stolen artifacts and unwillingness to provide basic health care through employee health insurance and he gets us and all of this. But before we get into all of that, how do you feel about what we've talked about so far? Like a business that is closed on Sunday. And the owner of said business credits God and tithing for his success. So to be honest, and because that that is an interesting question. Um, and I had to think for a minute about how I felt about this. I'm not necessarily super bothered by this. It's because n- I it's nice to see. And how do I want to phrase this? It's nice to see a successful business person who didn't build their business by getting a big loan from their rich parents or get their initial business idea greenlit because of their familial connections 
And it's nice to see somebody who gained success by just like, here's a thing that people want. I'm going to sell it to them. And, you know, and like something that is as... I don't I don't know if I want to call it like just capitalist mindset wholesome but like you know what I'm saying like as a, well, we were, I'm like we were sold the idea of this is how capitalism works like if you work hard enough you will get success and if you don't get success it's because you're not working hard enough and we know that that is way oversimplified and just does not match up with reality for many many people but if somebody is going to get rich off of capitalism I would rather it be somebody who worked hard yeah, and I mean, like this guy, you know, it does seem like he actually did grind it out. I think you can maybe maybe we should say we can respect the hustle. Yeah, I think that because like I'm used to you and I like we're used to like the way things are like the startup hell we are in right now where somebody can like you can found a company, get venture capital funding and operate at a huge loss for years and years and years and then like flood the market with your product and undercut small businesses and drive them into bankruptcy and then like sell your startup company that isn't profitable but now has a huge market share and you can sell it out to some mega conglomerate all without ever even turning a pro- like making a dime in in profits and then the mega conglomerate will then say, well, okay, well, now we've cornered the market. We're going to double or triple the prices to make our money back on our investment. And then everybody's screwed because our, our neighbors got driven out of business. And now we're paying more money for inferior quality product because they have like startup branding that looks like, you know, bootleg Apple branding from 12 years ago or whatever. And it's like, and it's all just because we have to live with, and we all just have to live with it because some 27 year old frat dude had to become a billionaire so that people would let him onto like Sigma Grindset podcasts. And he can talk about how his struggle was real and how uh, he has the wolf mind. I don't know whatever the f- they're talking about these days, but that's what I'm used to. And this is not that. I guess this is better than that. I think. Yeah, it's not. Um, this is good, but it's you know there. I I respect somebody more when I when I perceive that they've worked for what they have. I have really conflicting feelings about a business that is branded as a Christian business. They're, you know, closed on Sunday. Then the owner boasts of his tithing because if that was all it was, it would be pretty okay. If that was all Chick-fil-A was, it would be fine. I could still be eating delicious chicken sandwiches if that was all Chick-fil-A was. It doesn't always work out in the world that somebody works hard and then gets rewarded. But if billionaires have to exist, I'd rather it be the one that 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 you know started from nowhere and worked hard, I guess. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me if a business owner is giving 10% or more of his money to a church or to or to charity. But that's where it gets really sticky because what church or what charity? And is that church or charity potentially harmful? Not just something that I don't like, but something that's actually harmful. I don't. I don't want this to seem like we're defending billionaires because, frankly, they don't need defending. Because also, like when somebody says this person is a billionaire, that doesn't mean this person has one billion dollars in the bank right now. This they mean this person owns assets of greater than one billion dollars in value, and in a lot of cases, that means that somebody started or maintains a personal controlling interest in a company that is worth a lot of money i don't know maybe the takeaway from this is that there shouldn't be companies that are that big that are that like powerful in Mm. i don't know yeah 
Don't ask us for the answers because we don't have them. I think we can get into magical thinking when when we are trying to be progressive and trying to think about morality as it morality as related to what is good for humanity. But it's not it's not a light switch. It's not you have 999,999,999 dollars and you're a good person and then when you get one more dollar you become an evil person. It's not um it's not a light switch. We don't want to give way to magical thinking. I I know. I I think the pursuit of money past a certain point like past the point where you can yes. reasonably say I want this money to take care of my family and like go on a nice vacation every once in a while and have a good house and like and indulge myself once in a while like pursuit of money past that just not the best thing and I think the culture surrounding money in this country especially with regards to like the expansion of like the expansion of market share of luxury goods over the past decade is one of the craziest things if you look at that over the past, this is a whole thing that I could talk about for hours and hours and hours about Veblen goods and how if you look at who's spending money on luxury goods, it's not rich people. It's like working class people who want to look like rich people. It's totally nuts. Um, I could spend hours and hours and hours talking about that. But like so much of it is driven by like, you know, ego and, and, and consumerism and trying to look like you have more money or, or look like you're more successful rather than just like. Yeah. yeah, but I do I do agree with scripture when scripture says that accum- uh, having your goal to be the accumulation of as much wealth as possible above all else is a bad thing morally. I agree with you, but I'm going I'm going somewhere with all these questions. If you take somebody like Do Wan Cheng, who is the founder of Forever Twenty One, Do Wan Cheng and his wife Jen Suk Cheng are Christians. You may have seen Bible verses printed on the bottom of Forever Twenty One shopping bags before. Don Wan Chang was quoted as saying, God told me that I should open a store and that I would be successful. I saw a quote online of someone claiming that Bible verses printed on the bottom of Forever 21 shopping bags, quote, feels like an imposition on public property, public space. And frankly, I feel like this is a really bad take. Yeah. Hmm. I don't like because it isn't public property. It is like the bags of the store you're selling. I don't know. Like the bag is the store's property until it becomes the property of the person who bought the item. Yeah. And like, I don't want to, I don't want us to be a country like, I mean, there's countries where they literally ban public displays of religion. And I, and that can be problematic because there can be people who are just wearing their traditional religious garb in public and they're outside of the law for doing that. And I think that's wrong. I, I think also my perspective on this is is just shifted because I'm sort of used to Christians shoehorning Jesus into a lot of places where it is frankly pretty annoying. So putting a Bible verse on the bottom of a shopping bag where I don't actually have to see it feels kind of unobtrusive to me. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk, I guess we've already talked about Hobby Lobby paying for the He Gets Us ads. It's like putting a Bible verse on the bottom of a shopping bag is significantly less bothersome to me than... I turn on the TV to watch football and I get ads for Jesus and I'm like, I just like, please leave me alone. <laughs> or may, like, also I'm maybe I'm just kind of like jaded right now because the bar downstairs from my house has already started playing Christmas music. And on the day we're recording this, it is November 6th, but they have their Christmas decorations up and I have had to hear, let's hear that ring, ding, dingling, jing, jing, jingling, do you know that one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I am really against 
uh, proselytizing without consent. But I feel like with the Forever 21 shopping bag, you don't have to shop there in the first place if you don't want to. It's not like Forever 21 has a monopoly on cheap, hyper-trendy clothing. You don't have to look at the bottom of your shopping bag if you don't want to. You don't have to go look up the verse if you don't want to. Other people walking by you in the mall are not going to see the verse on the bottom of your shopping bag. And if you say that Forever 21 is imposing on public space with four letters and three numbers in tiny print, you're effectively demanding a completely secular public space. And I find that unreasonable when the same mall that the Forever 21 is in probably has a Christian bookstore somewhere in it, or at least a Barnes and Noble with a Christian section. And we all know (laughs) going into the Hallmark store, we all know what that is like. And it's totally possible that the same mall has a store selling icons or symbols from other religions as well. In case you hadn't noticed, humans are kind of really into religion. Really? I didn't know this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like with that. I do find it weird that a company that like, cause like uh, there's a difference between like a, a small family run business saying we're a Christian company. Cause like if you have a company that's super big, then you're going to have not just like one or two, but like a lot of people working for your company that don't share your faith and that can put them in an uncomfortable position. And I've definitely been in a position before where I've been working for a company and their values didn't match up with my own values, but I had to do things that, or I was, uh, uh, it was highly suggested that I needed to do things that I didn't consider to be right or moral or didn't v- match up with my values, or I would be punished for it. Or like, and, and like this was a time when the job market wasn't very good. So there were like not a lot of jobs that I would have been qualified for. And this wasn't in like a religious sense. This was more in like a, you should try to get these people to sign up for credit cards or you should try to get people to buy Mm -hmm. extended warranties on the things that like things of that nature that like any sort of sales job is going to have you do. And the pressure was that even for a secular business. And so I'm trying to imagine like if I worked for a company that was like expressly like a a Christian company, I wouldn't want to work for a Christian company if I knew that that's what the management structure was like, because I, 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 I like if that was the only gig in town, that feels really oppressive to me. I can see that. Yeah. Cause like I could see like, it's, I don't know, like say I got a job at like a halal restaurant and they said, we are a Muslim business and we practice zakat. So two and a half percent, what is it? Two and a half, whatever. Per- I yeah. I don't know. They, they, whatever percent of, of their proceeds go to charity. Um, I'd be like, okay, that's cool. It's a small business, whatever. It, but it, for me, it gets weird if it's like a big company or if it's an employer with a religious conviction and they start giving preferential treatment to other employees who have similar beliefs or if they start getting like punishing employees who don't have the same belief. Like that's something that I could definitely see happening and that's something that I have a problem with. So let's say you were working at a halal restaurant and they give money to charity. That doesn't have a negative outcome on you as an employee. No. Because they're paying you the same. The only negative outcome is if the charity that they're donating to is somehow offensive, which seems unlikely. Even like, so let's say you work at a halal restaurant and they tell you, well, you can get a shift meal from us for your lunch break, or you can bring in your own food. But if you bring in your own food, it needs to be halal food. That is a reasonable requirement because they need to keep the restaurant like they have yeah, to that's do certain the key, the certification. their restaurant yeah that's i don't see that as different than having a dress code or any other normal reasonable job requirement or like if i got a job at like a kosher deli it would be the same thing right 
point. Um, it would be a problem if the business said, well, in order to be an employee here, you can only eat halal food on the clock and off the clock. That would be a very silly thing to require, just like it would be a silly thing to require if any business said that you had to abide by their dress code while off the clock, or you had to wear your uniform while off the clock. And this is a phenomenon that for a company like Chick, like not Chick, like Hobby Lobby, they are kind of trying to have that influence over people. That is where I have been going with this entire very long sidebar. It is not a problem if a company gives money to charity that is not a problematic charity or calls themselves a Christian company or even requires certain things of their employees while on the clock, reasonable requirements while on the clock. It becomes a problem when the company makes decisions based on religion that cause harm like donating to an anti-LGBTQ organization that promotes conversion therapy, or when they discriminate against employees based on the religious beliefs of the owners or founders of the company, or when the religious beliefs of the owners of the founders of the company affect the employee in their private life, which of course is exactly what we're talking about today. I know that was a really long sidebar, but I thought it was important to lay this out because... Forever 21 and Hobby Lobby are two of the largest explicitly Christian businesses operating in the U.S., but there are literally thousands of religious small businesses, and there are many other large businesses in the U.S. that claim to be Christian companies. In this episode, we're going to be talking about what we think some of the harms perpetrated by Hobby Lobby are, and I think we needed to lay the groundwork first for how we feel about businesses that make their religious beliefs or the religious beliefs of the owners known. It's not about this is a religious business, so let's make fun of them. It there's There is a line, and the line is real-world harm. Because just like Chick-fil-A is notorious for giving large sums of money to groups that promote conversion therapy and anti-LGBTQ rights causes, Hobby Lobby has also done some really shady and some really harmful things as well. So I think it's time for us to talk about uh, Hobby Lobby's political activism. So according to Open Secrets, Hobby Lobby owners and executives have donated money to a variety of political causes, including uh, mostly conservative uh, causes, but some have gone to uh, liberal funds and candidates. So they've donated money to the Republican Party's campaign fundraising. They've also donated money to House Representatives uh, Ski, uh, Steve Scalise, uh, is it Steve Scalise? Steve Scalise. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Uh, he's been in the news lately, lately because he was almost going to be Speaker of the House, but he wasn't. That's one of those ones where I've read the name a bunch of times and I don't know that I've heard it. <laughs> I keep hearing it on the news. I think they see, uh, keep saying Steve Scalise. So I think it's Steve Scalise. Yeah. They donated money to uh, Steve Scalise. They also donated money to former Democrat House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi. Most interestingly, they gave uh, 400. There was a $400 individual donation to one lauren bobert which i think it's a very interesting person for uh, uh an executive at a self-professed uh, christian company to be supporting lauren bobert somebody who's like i'm super christian and then they're like given handies of the beetlejuice musical that's weird shit. i mean christians do weird shit too that's not like a secular thing but like most of the people i know who are secular people aren't going to be given handies at uh the beetlejuice musical and like 
You know, it wasn't it wasn't that that even made me the most frustrated about that situation. It was the fact that her date owned a drag bar. That's the thing is that these types of people who are always the most loudly proclaiming of, oh, this is my faith. This is what my faith is. And I do it in like my faith is that they're always the biggest hypocrites. And it's always just for show. I mean, look at George Santos. Uh, <laughs> dudes. And George Santos doesn't exist. Yeah. In 2016, Hobby Lobby gave $20,000 to a super PAC backing Ben Carson's presidential run. Remember Ben Carson? The guy who didn't stab somebody, who said he stabbed somebody, but he didn't. David Green has also supported Donald Trump's presidential run. Hobby Lobby is rumored, uh, but not confirmed, to donate to several conservative and Christian nationalist super PACs. But this cannot be confirmed because super PAC donations are are often difficult to trace. So don't say that we have confirmation of that because we don't, but it is a rumor that's out there. Uh, Hobby Lobby's greatest political impact, however, has been at the Supreme Court. Are we ready to talk about that? Yes, I did just want to side note that we can confirm that David Green is all up in Donald Trump's business. Um, The two, they have invited each other to galas and presentations and fancy rich people things. And a lot of the the opening party for Museum of the Bible, which we're going to get to, took place at Trump's hotel in D.C. There's There have definitely been business dealings between the two of them. So back in 2010, Congress passed the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. This was uh, President Obama's signature piece of legislation that was passed, uh, which changed the laws surrounding health care and health insurance. And part of this legislation was a requirement that health insurance cover birth control. Dun, dun, dun. As we've talked about before on this show, birth control is opposed by some Christian fundamentalists and different hormonal birth control methods are either allowed or not allowed, depending on who you ask and whether or not they have had any science education. And Hobby Lobby is a Christian company and they did not want to be responsible for providing their employees with birth control because they felt that it was against their Christian values. And since we have a system that says that you have to get health insurance through your job that sort of meant that if you work for hobby lobby then they're the ones who are responsible for giving you your birth control which is kind of messed up but whatever Mm. yeah this it makes me so mad because birth control is one of the biggest anti-abortion tools that exists because people that do not become pregnant do not need abortions fundamentalism has spread this this complete misinformation and lie that many types of hormonal birth control are quote-unquote abortive when that is simply 100% not accurate. Well, it depends on whether or not you believe life begins at fertilization or whether or not you life begins at implantation, which is just like... Well, no, no, it doesn't because... No, because hormonal birth control prevents fertilization. It is only... Of, of the commonly used birth control methods, it is only the copper IUD that can potentially allow fertilization and prevent implantation. I didn't know that. I thought that it just that the hormonal birth control tricked your body into thinking that you were pregnant. Yes, but that that in and of itself prevents fertilization because many people will not ovulate at all when they are on any type of hormonal birth control. So there is no egg. So therefore there can be no fertilization. It also changes body chemistry so that if a person did ovulate, the sperm is still much less likely to ever reach the egg. 
Um, hormonal birth control per- works by preventing fertilization through more than one method. I thought that it worked by uh, preventing implantation, but I guess I was Mm-mm, wrong. That about is that. The, only the copier IUD. The more you know. Thank you for teaching me about that. And if you didn't know and you're listening to this, I guess you learned too. And I'm glad I learned something today. Hooray. Happy to help. Yeah, it just seems like they just don't want you to be f- is how. Right. Like misinformation and lack of sex education and lack of science education allows fundamentalists to claim that this is an abortion issue when it is, it is not. It is a controlling who is having safer sex issue. Actually, I just want to revise what I said earlier because they actually do want you to be f***ing. They just want you to be having as many kids as possible because, and we haven't mentioned this, Hobby Lobby has given millions of dollars to Bill Gothard and the IBLP. Uh, of course they have. Yeah, they've also given money to many Joel Osteen related ministries. So that's really something to me because well, prosperity gospel. Well, I read a ton of articles about David Green, and I was just not able to put my finger on what specific type of religious fundy type person he is. It's rare to see somebody that would support both Bill Gothard and Joel Osteen because they are kind of on opposite ends of the of a spectrum from hyper fundamentalist to very charismatic prosperity gospel televangelist. I mm. like the, the world that I grew up in, I would not have known anybody that would have supported both of those people. Do you want to know what I see here? Mm. I see the as long as it is Christian, it is good. Yes. Because Bill Gothard, I don't feel that Bill Gothard or the IBLP would support the He Gets Us commercials, because I think that that would be way too liberal for IBLP, IFB fundies. And David Green, of course, supported those as well. So I think it's a, yeah, it's a broad spectrum religion by any means necessary kind of thing. Yeah, because I mean, from what I see is that I think that as far as David Green, like David Green thinks, like because if you look at his story, both his mother and his father were, I think, ministers. I might be wrong about this, uh, but I think I remember reading that. So if it means that he was probably raised in a branch of fundamentalism that did allow women in ministry, which means that he wasn't like going to be like Hiles IFB, but he was also very much the small church, like the uh, the local church, and mm-hmm. if he's supporting. Um, the he gets us ads he gets us ads aren't kjv right they're not like they're not kjvo and they recommend church like and we looked at the uh a few months ago uh i think we did a q a episode in which we discussed hobby lobby and we looked at the churches that are supported that uh the he gets us website tells you that you should go to and this was several months ago and i'll link uh whichever episode this was back in uh, in, in our episode notes so that you can go to it is that there was such a wide variety of I mean, they were all protestant churches i think i don't think any of them were catholic mm-hmm. but they were all protestant churches but there were churches there that were calvinist there were churches there that were like southern baptist there were churches there were there were like american baptists there were like pentecostals there were just like very non-denominational but like hillsong e type churches like there were all mm-hmm. of these different kinds of of churches and it seemed to me like as long as it's as it's getting people to jesus then that's what we want but David Green is somewhat of a fundamentalist because he had this objection to providing 
birth control, which in reality is not abortive to employees. And this birth control case went all the way to the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. So the Supreme Court ruled that Hobby Lobby didn't have to pay for the birth control. And I think that the the federal government, they already had a sort of workaround done for religious organizations so that the Catholic Church wouldn't have, like if you were working for the Catholic Church and you had health insurance through the Catholic Church, that you wouldn't have to get your uh, birth control from, like there would be like a government thing. like If you were a teacher at a Catholic school or something. Yeah. And so there, that already existed. And so the government basically just expanded that framework to people who work for Christian or so companies that the idea of the, that a company can be Christian is freaking weird to me. But like the idea that Christian companies wouldn't have to provide that. Um, and so it didn't make a difference, but it did set a precedent. I mean, like, can you imagine if there was a company that was run by antinatalists who said that it was against their religious beliefs from uh, them paying for maternity leave? Hmm, corporate personhood. Corporate personhood is freaking weird. Like, Sadie? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're not hosting this podcast with Gavi. You've been hosting this podcast with Gavi Corp. And Gavi Corp operates both as a media <laughs> and entertainment company and as a lifestyle brand. And Gavi Corp's headquarters is in the Cayman Islands, but it operates offices in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Portland, Oregon. And uh, Gavi Corp had a $350,000 PPP loan forgiven. And the money from that went to mint highly exclusive Gavi Corp NFTs, which were then sold to Sam Bankman Freed in Paris Hilton for $4.2 million. Right. And Sadie Carpenter is a corporate construct who is a citizen of the United States Corporation, <laughs> but I am not Sadie Carpenter. I am a legal person, which means I don't have to have a driver's license or pay my credit card bill. But seriously, like corporate personhood is like the exact reverse of sovereign citizenship, but for companies. It's so freaking weird. It's like, so, okay, so if I I really dislike corporate personhood, in case you can't tell, I like personal corporate hood. So that's. (laughs) Which is the opposite of sovereign citizenship or the mirror image of it. Wait, corporate taxes are lower than individual taxes. So if I'm a corporation, if I change my legal name to Gavi Corp, then can I? Wait, does that mean that I don't need a passport? I just need to like, I don't know, get a business license in whatever country and then I can go there. That's that's genius. No, okay. Also, if I turn myself into a corporation, does that mean that I have to get a commercial driver's license? I don't know. Also, I just want to <laughs> let everyone know I have never minted an NFT and I've never had a PPP loan. So that was that was I all just a joke. Not either. No. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving Eden podcast NFTs, get them while they're hot, and then sell them immediately because that shit is going down the drain. You hear about the, all these people who bought those NFTs like for hundreds of thousands of dollars? They're worth like nothing now. And yeah, is, ugh. so uh, on to <laughs> other Hobby Lobby things. Hobby Lobby initially remained open during the COVID nineteen pandemic, citing that they were an essential built. Uh, citing that they were an essential business because they sold fabric and school supplies. I think that's extremely brave of them. And I'm going to go outside and bang some pots and pans out my window for the owners of Hobby Lobby right now. During the pandemic, internal memos encouraged managers to, quote, make every effort to continue working the employees. 
Although only salaried employees were eligible for sick leave, and hourly employees would be without pay if they needed to self-isolate after contracting COVID. Oh, man. Like a month later, the company abruptly changed course, closed all their stores, refused to pay their employees while the store was closed, and instead encouraged the employees to take full advantage of the government stimuli and unemployment. I mean, I know so many people whose jobs did this. Our job did this. Hobby Lobby stayed open claiming they were an essential business. Then they changed course and closed all their stores and wouldn't pay their employees. And then later, they illegally opened stores that were supposed to be closed during the lockdown. Do you remember like in 2020 when the whole hero pay thing, when people were like, oh, it's hero pay. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like 50 cents more an hour. Yeah. And people were like, I'm, like the shift's changing at five o'clock. Let's bang our pots and pans out the window so all of the healthcare workers know that we support them. Like, you know, it would be great if you f- paid these people and didn't make them you know, the, the just break their backs and ruin their f-ing lives and make it so they can't see their families ever without fear of like yeah. spreading a deadly disease to them. No, and then the companies just decided that the hero pay, we're, they're like, we're done with this. It's costing yeah. us too much money. This was fun for a minute, but we think that like the heat will die down if we stop doing this. Yeah. Although I'm emotionally attached to banging pots and pans out the window, um, and it's not my fault. I was pregnant, so it made me cry every night. <laughs> people did that for more than a week yeah like around my apartment building where i lived at the time yeah they did it for months there was a hospital like two blocks away from me because there well that same hospital was not too far from my house yeah i had a roommate who was really into it i'm just like this is like hobby lobby has also faced a rash of other scandals, including an anti-Semitism incident in which a Jewish customer was looking for Jewish holiday decorations and was told by an employee, we don't cater to your people. This one actually got a real apology from David Green. To be honest, man, I'm not mad at this. I'm actually kind of pleased because at least like Carissa Collins isn't going to go to the Hobby Lobby and see like a menorah and think, is it for me? Carissa Collins would go to Hobby Lobby, see a menorah, and decide it was a Passover decoration. (laughs) But move the move Passover a week because it was a better week to celebrate, and then carve Lamb of God on a watermelon and put the menorah right behind it. Well, it depends on what kind of uh, like the Hanukkah menorah has 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 like nine candles, and one of them will be raised because of the eight nights of Hanukkah. But like a regular menorah will have like seven candles and so we'll have three and three and one in the middle so that would be like appropriate but it kind you know, of seems like this it. was one of hobby lobby's least bad incidents actually because their excuse was individual store managers get to stock whatever they want to stock and what they think they will sell well in their area but our employee, what the employee said was 100% wrong, and we apologize. And his apology was accepted by the ADL. Where, so question, where was this store? Because well, I assume that it's somewhere not very Jewish, because if you're shop, like if you're a Jewish person and you're shopping for Judaica at Hobby Lobby, that's probably because they're the only game in town. Uh, this was in New Jersey. What? Mm-hmm. It, honey, you live in New Jersey and you're shopping for Hanukkah decorations at the Hobby Lobby? In New Jersey? 
I don't I don't know what to tell you. I just I didn't want to skip over that one, but it's um I'm just... Yeah, not the not the most what? evil thing they've done. Hobby Lobby was also involved in a lawsuit in which Megan Somerville, an employee at Hobby Lobby in East Aurora, Indiana, was barred from using the women's restroom at work after her transition. So she worked for Hobby Lobby for like 10 years before she transitioned. Um, and then after transition, she obviously wanted to use the correct restroom, but she was forced to either use the men's restroom at work or clock out and walk across the street to use the correct restroom at a nearby business. Megan at times restricted her fluid intake, which caused health problems in order to not need to fully clock out, leave work, walk across a busy street in the snow to use the correct bathroom. Uh, But she finally won against Hobby Lobby in 2021 after an almost 10-year fight to be able to safely use the restroom at work. That's wild. That's unsurprising as hell. But that Yeah, I kind of um mad respect for Megan because she still worked at Hobby Lobby for 10 years and fought for her right to safely use the restroom at work. It's no who the f- are you protecting by telling your employee that they can't use the right restroom? Who like who the who the f- does that, this just seems like it's just something to be done. How for busy the, are the restrooms really at Hobby Lobby? It's, I mean, it just seems like doing it for the sake of doing it. And yeah. because you're like, we have principles and we have to take it off. Just like. Yeah. Like the only person who needed protection here was Megan, who is an employee. That sucks. Not even kind of. I admire her toughness to stick it out. Um, and I hope she enjoys her 220K. Because we've all had jobs where we've like liked the actual job itself and we've thought it was a good job. And then it turned like, but there's like that one thing about it. Like there's the one person at the job who hates you or is like racist to you. And maybe they're your boss and they can't do anything about it. But you really like the people that you work with because they're really kind, except for the one person who's your boss, who's just like a jerk to you. And maybe the benefits are good. Like that's, that's really like freaking frustrating. Yeah. Well, that comes down to personal freedom because you want a person to be able to choose their job based on liking the job and having good benefits and getting paid what they deem is appropriate for themselves and and you know having a good relationship with their coworkers not do I feel safe and are my human rights respected here because people should feel safe and have their human rights respected everywhere yeah but Megan won I'm very happy for her Hobby Lobby's money may not be going towards basic health care for their employees, but it does go to a lot of very interesting places other than all of the lawsuits. Uh, Forbes write-up described David Green as carrying evangelical education on his back, and they provided quite a few examples. Um, reading, quoting directly from Forbes here. He gave a former Erickson plant in Lynchburg, Virginia, which he bought for $10.5 million to Jerry Falwell's Liberty University in 2004. He gave an entire campus to Zion Bible College in Haverhill, Massachusetts in 2007 at the cost of $16.5 million. In 2009, Green snapped up the 217-acre former campus of Massachusetts Prep School, Northfield Mount Hermon, for just $100,000, spent $9 million on renovations and plans to give it away. Christian universities across the country have been auditioning for this attractive location, causing a minor stir in the liberal New England town of Northfield. In his biggest splash, 
Green bailed out scandal-ridden, debt-laden Oral Roberts University with a $70 million gift in 2007, a donation with strings attached. $70 million. Green got to replace the college's misgoverning board of trustees. Today, with his son, Mart, chairman of the board, and one of his granddaughters, a new alumnus, Green calls Oral Roberts a healthy university. $70 million. Man. He bought a college. (laughs) Many. And there is another quote from that Forbes article about David Green's qualifications for who he will help. He won't help them unless they pass a doctrinal vetting process, which includes questions about the virgin birth. Even well-known pastor Rick Warren needed to pass Green's muster before the billionaire handed his Saddleback Church a 170-acre ranch property last August to use as a retreat. So it's like a litmus test. I will give you money if you agree with me and spread a version of Christianity that is reasonably similar to mine to other people. I mean, I guess it is his money and he can choose who he wants to give it to. But also like, man. (sighs) The one that bugged me was when he bought Oral Roberts University and made his son the chairman of the board. Because that feels too much like he bought himself a college that he can now control. And all of that on top of he gets us. So Hobby Lobby has had their fair share of scandals, but none have been bigger than the time they illegally smuggled a lot of artifacts. So I thought we would go take up the offering and get into the the artifact smuggling business. Sounds good. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. 
We are back from our break. We've talked about a lot of the financial dealings, some of the legal dealings, some of the political dealings. Um, we've got a little bit more of that coming up, but we're going to talk about the artifact smuggling scandal because this was, I think, for me, I think this was the biggest one. I'm so ready. Iraq, the Middle East, the Levant are areas of serious interest to American Christians for obvious reasons. These are areas where the biblical Israelites lived during like the Babylonian exile. These are also areas where Christianity spread to in its early days. As a result of this, there are many sites as well as artifacts that are intriguing to Christians from a historical perspective. Following the Operation Desert Storm and the first Gulf War, Chaotic and sometimes unstable political situations as well as political corruption have led to authorities turning a blind eye to some of these sites, these religious sites being plundered for valuable artifacts and then sold to collectors. So this has been going on for decades. Following the American pullout from Iraq in 2011, the start of and, and like the start of the ongoing Syrian civil war and the rise of ISIS, the trafficking of stolen ancient religious artifacts has increased. Extremist groups like ISIS were prolific in their looting and destruction of non-Islamic religious sites and were behind a lot of the trafficking and selling of these goods. This was especially a problem in the Kurdistan region of northern Iraq, which has a higher population of Christians. The Yazidis who live in Kurdistan, victims of some of the most brutal violence that was propagated by ISIS. These, the artifacts that were taken from these religious sites, some of them were sold on eBay and some of them were sold in large lots to private sellers. And one of the largest buyers of these artifacts was Steve Green, son of David Green, who purchased them to display in his Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., so I'm sure a lot of our U.S. listeners and those who were raised in fundamentalism will know exactly what a museum of the Bible is. But I also know we have listeners from other places outside the U.S. So, uh, shout out especially to all of those Australian listeners. We see you. Uh, and I know we have listeners who weren't raised in fundamentalism at all. So I feel like I should take a minute to explain exactly what a Bible museum is is. David Green is the founder of the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., but that is not the only museum of the Bible out there by a long shot. I found an article that references eight around the country from the big, I think, 500,000 square foot museum in Washington, D.C. to literal roadside attractions in somebody's house in Kentucky somewhere. <laughs> and that article missed the collection at Liberty University and the Bible Manuscript Room at Pensacola Christian College. So I can't say exactly how many museums of the Bible there might be, but I can confidently say at least 10, although my guess would be much higher. A Bible museum sounds like a place that you might go to see cool or historical Bibles like this Bible belonged to someone famous, or this Bible is an original printing of the Geneva Bible from 1560. And that's certainly one type of thing you might find there. The manuscript room at PCC, I think, has a Bible that belonged to Florence Nightingale. Oh, wow. At larger museums of the Bible, you might see fragments of Dead Sea Scrolls or other materials related to the translation of the Bible into English. 
I remember one such place that I visited, I believe it was the manuscript room at Pensacola Christian College, had some coins from the early first century CE. If you're familiar with the New Testament story of the widow who gave two mites to God, they were mites. They had the coins that were spoken about in that story. So a Bible museum might have rare or unusual or historical copies of the Bible. They might have artifacts related to the translation of the Bible, and they can also have artifacts related to the time and place in which the Bible was written. The way that these things are presented can vary a lot between different institutions. For example, the manuscript room at Pensacola Christian College is very much geared toward proving that God has preserved the Bible throughout all these generations and showing why they believe that the King James Version is the inspired and preserved Word of God. So if a museum of the Bible is geared toward inspiration and preservation of the King James Version, and they have a Geneva Bible, for example, they may display their copy of the Geneva Bible open to a page that contains a misprint or a mistake or a place that the translation differs from the King James Version. So they're trying to show the Geneva Bible was important, but this is how we know it's not the inspired and preserved Word of God. The Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., which was founded and bankrolled by the Green family, is much more ecumenical. They partner with the Vatican for different exhibits, and they have included Catholic exhibits such such as uh, exhibits referring to the Stations of the Cross, but that certainly doesn't apply to all Bible museums. The Museum of the Bible is legally a separate entity from Hobby Lobby. It is its own legal entity, but Steve Green is the chairman of the board of directors, um, David Green's son, and I think it is a pretty fair assumption that the Green family is influential over who the board members are, beginning with the fact that they installed their own son as the chairman of the board. <laughs> Historical artifacts on display at the Museum of the Bible are very often from the Green Collection. The Green Collection refers to many thousands of artifacts, many millions of dollars worth of artifacts that are either ancient scripture fragments, very old and valuable Bibles, archaeological artifacts from around the times that are written about in the Bible. The Green Collection is a misnomer because the Green Collection is not legally owned by the Green family. The Green Collection is legally owned by Hobby Lobby, the corporation. Hobby Lobby uh, can either allow the museum to display items from the Green Collection on loan, or Hobby Lobby can donate items from the Green Collection to the museum. When these donations occur, the stated value of the artifact, as opposed to the appraisal price of the artifact, always just so happens to get Hobby Lobby the best tax write-off possible for their donation. It's very important when you buy things that you shouldn't have from people that shouldn't be selling them to you, and then you donate them to yourself, that you get the best tax write-off for your generous donation. This is such a shell game. This is such a scam. Oh my god. Technically legal. So far, we're going to get into the illegal stuff. What we've talked about so far is legal. That made me mad, so I thought I would take a fun fact break. 
I did look up a little personal interest item of mine, which is a Wicked Bible. The Wicked Bible is a 1631 printing of the King James Version in which there was a very unfortunate typesetting error. The word not in Exodus 2014 was accidentally left out. If you take the word not out of Exodus 2014, you get the verse reading, thou shalt commit adultery. Woo! <laughs> it was, uh, there was that mistake and then one other mistake in the Wicked Bible typesetting. There were about a thousand copies of the Wicked Bible printed before anyone discovered the mistake. The King of England at the time, King Charles I, fined the printers heavily and had all unsold copies of the Wicked Bible destroyed. And then the government attempted to recall copies that had been sold to destroy them as well. However, before anybody found the mistake, enough Bibles had been sold that the government was not able to locate and destroy all of them. And 15 copies that we know of have survived to this day. One of those 15 copies is at the Museum of the Bible in D.C. That's actually really funny. It's, it's just a fun fact break because the whole donating things to yourself to get a tax write-off made me mad. If, if we're being real here, I genuinely see how a Museum of the Bible is an important and interesting museum for people who are religious or not religious. And I like it's a cool way for people to connect with history or to connect with their own beliefs or to just like learn about other people's beliefs, even from a secular perspective. The Bible is of tremendous historical importance and deserves to have its own museum. Also, Bible times and Bible places are real historical times and places. And important and interesting things happened in those times and places. You can believe whatever you want about whether Jesus was a real person who rose from the dead around AD 30 in Jerusalem. And, and that's fine, but AD 30 was a real time, or 30 CE was a real time, and Jerusalem is a real place. And the Bible's writing about that real time and real place had an effect on the real world today that really can't be overstated. Yeah, I mean, they also have, um, I'm looking at this here, it says they have a partnership with the Israeli Antiques Authority who will frequently loan them antiques and they have like a rotating display. That's yeah, so they partner um, with the, they partner with many different agencies, including the actual Vatican. That's interesting. It It is because the Green family are clearly some kind of Protestant evangelicals. Um, and you don't often see crossover with the Vatican. It, and it goes right back to David Green painting with a broad brush and being more ecumenical than a lot of evangelicals generally would be. I think that's also interesting because in the He Gets Us ads, none of the churches that they were recommending were Catholic but then again, recommending somebody go to a Catholic church is kind of a different thing than saying, hey, you should go check out Jesus at this local non-denominational church. So, Yeah, that's across the line for the evangelicals, for sure. No, between, so between 2010 and 2016, Hobby Lobby paid $1.6 million for ceramic tablets, which came from Iraq by way of fences in Israel and the United Arab Emirates and were declared at customs to be ceramic tiles so as not to disclose their Iraqi origin. 
and, and these were tiles that had been looted from religious sites in, I think, southern Iraq. Yes, there was a, a lost city that there was an archaeological dig there, and a lot of the stuff that got dug up got stolen, sold illegally, uh, kind of filtered into the mainstream of antiquities dealers. The thing is, though, the, the dark part of this, though, is that, as I mentioned earlier, between the years of like 2010 and 2016, that was a time when mili- like Islamic State militants, like ISIS militants, were behind a lot of the trafficking of these artifacts. And so this sale, the money that Hobby Lobby was paying for these artifacts... The money that Hobby Lobby was paying for these artifacts, some of it was filtering through and going back to fund ISIS fighters who were who had a campaign of violence against Christians and other religious and ethnic minorities in northern Iraq. Yeah. So that's bad and it's going to get a lot worse. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's just frustrating to me to see like, okay, you're Christian and you're trying to support the... I guess the Christian agenda and yet there's Christians in other countries and you're helping them get persecuted. And it seems really two faced to me. Yeah. Um, Hobby Lobby's excuse is going to be, of course, that they didn't know. We'll get into that. Hobby Lobby is really playing the Israeli antiquities authority on this because like you said, they had a partnership to display some items, but the, there were antiquities dealers in Israel who were buying these looted artifacts and then claiming the artifacts were of Israeli provenance, like that they came from Israel, Oh, on documentation to sell them to the Green family who knew that they really came from other places. Um, but they basically, it's using these Israeli antiquities dealers are getting out of paying taxes and acting outside the scope of the license that they had to sell antiquities. That's way worse than I than I initially thought. No, you know what? I bet Hobby Lobby has the menorah that was looted from the temple and like I bet Hobby Lobby has the Ark of the Covenant hiding in their warehouse somewhere or maybe <laughs> they have like a fake ark. You know you know how there's a fake Ark of the Covenant that's in Ethiopia? I do not. Yeah, we should That's interesting. We should do an episode about that eventually at some point. The $1.6 million for ceramic tiles was kind of the headline of the whole story, but there is a lot more to it than that. The chief curator for the Museum of the Bible at the time said that so many different artifacts artifacts came in all the time to the museum with falsified documentation, listing the country of origin incorrectly to get around customs, or they just arrived without proper documentation to begin with. The museum often didn't know what acquisition a thing was from, much less where the thing actually came from or any sense of historical provenance for the thing. So in 2010, the $1.6 million purchase went down. This was before the opening of the Museum of the Bible. It was Hobby Lobby, the company which made the purchase. The U.S. government investigation started at this time and it was suspected that some of these artifacts came from the looting of the national museum of iraq in 2011 hobby lobby transferred the 1.6 million dollars to seven different bank accounts in different people's names at the instruction of the dealer who sold them these ceramic titles tiles that's not sketchy at all 
And so they were shipped from Iraq by an Israeli dealer with false customs declarations that said they had been shipped from Israel and Turkey. And then some of these artifacts were intercepted and held by U.S. Customs. Hobby Lobby eventually reached a settlement with the United States government that required them to return all of these artifacts. And so they got fined $3 million on top of that as well, which I like if you're a giant company like Hobby Lobby and you get caught committing crimes like this, I think you should get fined more than $3 million. This is like the National Museum of Iraq that got yeah and plundered yeah and also archaeological sites that had things just stolen from the dig and then they bought them on from like a black market israeli antiques dealer that is sketchy as hell right and then that's where so this is where the whole israeli antiquities authority thing comes in because after all of this Hobby Lobby did not stop buying shady antiquities. The $1.6 million purchase that made the news was just the time they got caught. The Green family like initially got caught. The Green family and Hobby Lobby were buying millions of dollars worth of artifacts, thousands of artifacts per year at times throughout like the, the entire early 2000s. This is just the one that went bad. The Department of Homeland Security had contacted the Israeli Antiquities Authority and gave them the heads up that some more money transfers had been going down between the Green family and the licensed Israeli antiquities dealers. So the Israeli Antiquities Authority did a raid, and they raided five different locations, and they confiscated cash, they confiscated antiquities, and they arrested five antiquities dealers for tax evasion. Good. Yeah, I misspoke in my last sentence, by the way. They did a raid on several locations. I'm not 100% sure that five locations is correct. Were they, were, these are locations in Israel or they locations yes. in America as well? Okay. There are locations in Israel mm. and the, the dealers are licensed. And so that's the specific crime. So you get the license and then you retitle your antiquities as other things and then sell them under false. Okay, that makes more sense. Right. They were selling them outside of the terms of their licenses to get around paying tax on the things that they had sold. So by some counts, Iraq alone has received as many as an additional 25,000 artifacts back from the Museum of the Bible. In addition to the original 3,800 items that were originally returned as part of the settlement. Furthermore, the Museum of the Bible has returned 5,000 items to Egypt, as um, including, the Gil- including the Gilgamesh Dream Tablet. And just to be fair to Hobby Lobby, the Gilgamesh Dream Tablet was not their fault. They bought that legally and above board from Christie's, which should have been 100% legit. It was Christie's that lied about how it came to be on the market. I mean, like, I know that the way these were sold and imported low-key provides some plausible deniability to Hobby Lobby, except for, like, the send it to us under the names of seven individuals. Send us the monies in just the sketchiest way. Like, Like, they have to have known that they were trafficking in stolen goods, and they must have had some idea of where these artifacts were coming from. So Steve Green, a son of David Green and now CEO of Hobby Lobby, said, quote, I trusted the wrong people to guide me and unwittingly dealt with unscrupulous dealers in those early years. We should have exercised more oversight and carefully questioned how the acquisitions were handled. 
So the excuse was and has always been, we didn't know people could possibly mislead us. We were just really jazzed to amass this near priceless collection of really cool Bible sh**. And we ignored every single red flag, like when we were asked to send $1.6 million to seven different personal bank accounts in seven, seven different names. We were just really jazzed about getting the Bible stuff, guys. Sorry. I absolutely call BS on this one. It's like, I like it, it, an Israeli antiques dealer asks you to send money to seven different back, like, Jesus, like this, I, I feel like David Green would have been got by like Tinder Swindler or like your <laughs> enemies after me. <laughs> I swear, like, God, no, like, cause I mean, I, I have, there's a few people who I have met in passing, not people that I know well, but people who I've met, like friends of friends that have like not David Green money, but people who have maybe like a hundred million dollars in net worth. And I'm telling you right now, like when you get up into that kind of wealth, unsavory people come swarming and you don't get to that level of wealth without figuring out that some people are sketchy and shouldn't be trusted. Everyone's got a fix like in, in that level, everyone's got a fixer. And if you have that kind of money and you want something, there is a person who can get it for you by legal means or otherwise. And they know how to get it done and they keep secrets and they don't talk. And if the price is high enough and then somebody is going to be willing to commit a crime to get it done. Like organized crime serves the little guy and organized crime serves the big guy too. It caters to everybody's needs. And him acting like he had no idea that people who deal rare commodities to billionaires could be sketchy is the most unbelievable story that I have heard and I don't buy it for a minute. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm, we have to move on to another uh, antiquities-related uh, controversy involving Hobby Lobby. Um, so in This the, is my favorite one. <laughs> this one is... So we, yeah, so we discussed this in our... Uh, uh, 
in the episode a while back when we talked about why the King James version is the version for the fundies, Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls are a uh, ancient are, are a, a bunch of ancient preserved fragments of manuscript of the Hebrew Bible that has been dated back to between the third ten, uh, the third century BC and the first century AD. So in the second temple period, these scrolls were found in caves surrounding the Dead Sea in the late 1940s. The original discovery was by a Bedouin Arab shepherd named Muhammad Ed-Deeb. And throughout the 1940s uh, and, and 1950s, more discoveries in more caves surrounding the Dead Sea were found. Um, throughout the 1950s, uh, th- there's a, a man named uh, Khalil Iskander Shaheen, um, also who, who went by the name Kondo. He was a Syrian Christian antique dealer who began purchasing these scrolls from the Bedouins living in the West Bank who had found them. And some of these scrolls ended up in private collections. Um, But the majority of them are viewable to the public in museums. Some of them are currently housed in a museum in Amman, Jordan, and some of them are housed in a museum in Jerusalem. So according to the Smithsonian, Kondo died in 1993 and in 2002, the Kondo family began selling more scrolls, which had been allegedly sitting in a vault in Switzerland for several decades. In 2009, Steve Green purchased several of these scrolls. And in 2017, when the Museum of the Bible was opened in Washington, D.C., 16 of these scroll fragments were displayed as the main attraction of the museum. So here's a breakdown of where the 16 fragments came from. Seven were purchased from the Kondo family in May of 2010. Four were purchased from Dr. Craig Lamp, who was a dealer of Bible antiquities and whose collection and brokerage is now being carried on by his son, Joel Lamp, and another guy. Four were purchased from Andrew Steimer, who was at the time chairman and CEO of Legacy Ministries International. Steimer's name, this is interesting, his name comes up at random related to both fake Dead Sea Scroll fragments and also other real biblical antiquities. And then one was purchased from Michael Sharp, Rare and Antiquarian Books. So upon the museum opening in 2017, many researchers were suspicious of the lack of accounting of the chain of custody of these scrolls to the provenance. As with any historical item, if there is no verifiable, uh, like clear chain of custody, then this leads to suspicions that they're either stolen or they're forgeries. The Museum of the Bible was adamant that these scrolls are genuine, but in 2018, they enlisted German researchers to look into this. The researchers declared that five out of the 16 scrolls that were on display, or basically they, they examined five of the scrolls. Um, that uh, of the 16 ones that were on display and that all of the five that they examined were forgeries. Despite this, the Museum of the Bible kept the other 11 scrolls on display. In 2020, an examination of these scrolls found that all 16 were forgeries that were made in the 20th century. Um, And they were able to tell this uh, through a variety of ways. One of the ways that they were able to tell is that the like the genuine scrolls, the real scrolls are, are made of parchment 
And all 16 of the fake scrolls were made from leather that was taken from sandals that were about the same age as the real scrolls. So uh, about like 2000 years old. And after about 2000 years, leather and parchment appear very similar and they, they have almost an identical feel, but this as well as other chemical analyses gave away that the scrolls were fake and the scrolls have since been removed from the museum of the Bible. Another way that they were able to tell that the scrolls were fake was that the leather had small cracks in it, as you would expect 2,000-year-old leather to have, but the ink had been applied after the cracks had formed. So you would have ink that spanning a crack, but the ink would also be inside the crack of the leather. Mm. If the ink had been applied before the crack was there and had dried, when the crack formed, the ink wouldn't be inside the crack. It would be on either side of it. So that's another way that they were able to tell that they were fake. That's really interesting, but that's so like, that's so minute. That's so in the details that you wouldn't be able to do that unless you were able to really like get this stuff under a microscope. Right. Well, because the people who, whoever made these forgeries would have attempted not to get ink inside the crack, you would think because they would know, but they chemically analyzed what is this goo in the inside the very, very tiny crack inside this material that has writing on it. And the chemical analysis of that goo turned up modern ink. What's wild to me, I mean, because it's obvious the people who are making the forgeries, well, I guess if the forgeries were made by the Kando family, then they would have had access to the original, to like real scrolls to be able to compare them and try to make it look real. And I guess that it would be a lot easier if you were trying to make a forgery and if leather and parchment of about the same age appear really similarly, it's a lot easier to find 2,000-year-old leather than it is Mm -hmm. to find 2,000-year-old parchment. Because the authentic scrolls are written on parchment and papyrus. And I think that it would make sense if you were trying to make a forgery and you were trying to pass off your forgeries as legitimate, you could tell people, okay, these are on leather because modern Torah scrolls are written on leather or written on the, because they're, they're written on either leather or the skin of an animal that has been slaughtered in accordance to kosher practices and then stretched thin to make paper that you can write on out of it. So there was this other purported Dead Sea Scroll fragment that also turned out to be fake, that was also sto- also sold by Andrew Steimer, who was one of the people that sold fake scroll fragments to the Museum of the Bible. This particular fragment briefly appeared on the website of Craig Lamp, who was another person who sold fake Dead Sea Scroll fragments to the Museum of the Bible. The chain of custody listed by Andrew Steimer for this particular fragment is interesting. So one, community of the Essenes circa 30 BC to 68 AD. Those are the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scroll. Qumran Cave number 4, AD 68 to 1952. Three, uh, Bedouin discovers to Khalil Iksander Shaheen. Is that how you said that? (laughs) Yeah, uh, Khalil Iskander Shaheen. He's Khalil Iskander Shaheen in Bethlehem. Number four, Khalil Iskander Shaheen to a private collector in France. 
And it, so it was a, with a private collector in France, 1953 to 2004. Five, private collection, Switzerland, 2004 to 2006. Six, purchased and reconserved by an American dealer in 2006. And the, the quote, when Andrew Steimer was trying to sell this particular fragment on Craig Lamb's website, this item is guaranteed to be authentic, legally exported from the Middle East in the 1950s and legally imported into the United States. So the, the issues with this lie primarily with the private collector in France who had it from 1953 to 2004 and then private collection Switzerland from 2004 to 2006. Also, an American dealer. We don't have the names of that person, those people. And just saying it was in a private collection in France doesn't prove that it was in a private collection in France. Like there, for yeah. proof, we need something more than that. I mean, I'm I'm sure that that's the sort of thing where if you, because like a lot of people who have these sort of artifacts don't like to have their names be public, but like if you need to know, then you can find out. I think like my hypothesis is that the Kando, Kando or, or his family were somehow involved with making the forgeries because it like say it's the 1950s and you're trying to buy more scrolls and you can't find more scrolls, but you've got scrolls you can make copies of those scrolls if you want to. Because like it said that the ink was apparently applied sometime in the 20th century is what is 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 what the analysis found. Not that the ink was applied sometime like that. That's that's sort of my take on it is that I think it's most likely because they would have had access to the real scrolls to be able to make them as real as possible. The fakes mm. uh, as real as possible. I don't know. That's just speculation because otherwise I can't see a private collector making this for fake without having access to a real one and then trying to pass this one off as a real one if he didn't if he couldn't prove that he had purchased one from the Kando family or from Kando himself. Yeah, if you're rich enough to have a private collection, you're not going to be bothering with faking, making making fake things yourself. And the only way that you would be able to tell if one was real and one was fake is if you had the real one and the fake one next to each other, which is like, who is going to do that? When is that going to happen? And especially if all of the fake ones end up in um in a museum together all of the fake ones are next to me all of the ones in that museum yeah. are fake right and you know where all the real ones are you know that the fakes are never going to be put against the real ones right it's interesting this almost reminds me of um like Stradivarius violins because that is a thing we do not know for sure that we know where every single Stradivarius violin on the planet is there was a news story within my lifetime where somebody found one in their attic and it was real, um, a real Stradivarius in somebody's attic, I think in the United States. We, there is a finite number of Stradivarius violins because the maker Stradivarius had a limited lifespan and only made so many, but we don't know exactly how many he made because there are, there is, he did not keep an exact record of how many he made. And of the ones that he made that we don't know where they are, 
we have no way of knowing if they've been destroyed over time or if they are in a private collection somewhere or if they're in somebody's attic who has no idea what's up there. It's not like, um, you know, Jackie Kennedy's dress that she wore on the day of the Kennedy assassination. There is one. We know where it is. It's in Maryland. Last I checked. You always go back to the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> Dude, I met. Um, so I met a listener this week through like a it's hard to it's hard to explain how we know each other but i met somebody who is a listener and her husband is like oh by the way i got something to show you look it's original newspapers from the day of the kennedy assassination so wow yeah he's now my new best friend um, but like that's that's a thing a historically important thing that there is one of and we know where it is like these like stradivarius violins or dead sea scrolls um we know roughly how many they are how many there are we have a pretty good idea but we don't have an exact number and if somebody comes up with one produces one out of somewhere and says hey i've got this thing um it could be real so it it makes it a little bit harder to track down the real versus the fakes side note from all of this stuff in doing research for this episode i've come to learn that a lot of stuff that ends up in museums is just straight up stolen like it's it's all just like straight up stolen like and i'm not i'm not talking about like the big stuff you know like how there's mummies in the british museum and egypt's like what the hell why did you take our mummies but like a lot of ones they didn't eat are in the museum (sighs) (laughs) no i'm serious that's not like some kind of no, I'm I'm serious. There was a very real Victorian trend of using powdered mummies and tea for different health complaints. What? Yeah. Ugh. No, no, it's incredibly gross. But yeah, that was that was very much a thing. Jesus Christ! That's <laughs> what kind of weird day did you get my brain on today? I don't know. It's that's wild. No, like the, I mean, like no, a lot of countries like their national museums are just big buildings to like display all of the stuff that they stole like if you ask them where they got it they'll just it'll like oh it's private collector no stolen donated by an estate stolen like there's a lot of like uh, don't ask yeah uh i mean if you come to find that your house is broken into and, and your tv has been stolen check your local museum because it might be there <laughs> No, okay, so the museum, but but really, the Museum of the Bible didn't knowingly display fake artifacts to the public, and when they found out that the artifacts were fake, they removed them from their museum, and I won't fault them for that, but I do kind of love the schadenfreude, but if you like are the kind of person who wants to make a big, like a quick buck selling counterfeit biblical artifacts, I've got a buyer for you who has a lot of money, and they do not do their due diligence, and they are perfectly willing to finance the caliphate of your dreams. So, the museum also had to quietly replace a microfilm Bible that they had displayed. They believed it was one of several microfilm Bibles that Apollo 14 astronaut Ed- Edgar Mitchell had carried with him to the moon. It came to their attention that they were pretty sure the one that they had was one of the ones that went to the moon, but they weren't totally sure. Fortunately, somebody was able to donate one that definitely went to the moon. So they just switched them out without the fanfare accorded to some of their other lazy acquisitions. That is too funny. I do think that if I went there and I found out that half the stuff was fake, then I would ask for my money back. But you know. This episode has left me with more questions than answers. 
I would love to know how people who claim to reverence the Bible so much could be so careless with artifacts that, especially the artifacts that they present as proof for the validity of scripture. I would love to have an hour-long interview of trying to get Steve Green to explain exactly why he, his father, his family, and their museum collect so much of this stuff. Because there are like there was 40, there were over 30,000 artifacts returned to other places and didn't make that much of a dent in their collection. Some reports say that they currently have over 40,000 artifacts, and that's more than you could ever potentially display in a museum. It's like a hoarder. It is. It is like a hoarding situation, and they use Hobby Lobby warehouses to store this stuff. I genuinely do not think if you asked Steve Green to talk for an hour about why you need so much of this stuff, he would not be able to do it without either saying something like we're billionaires and we can, or two being blatantly problematic in one way or another. It's almost like kleptomaniacal in his desire to possess all like it, it it's very weird because it seems like almost like you get rich enough and like drugs aren't enough for you. So you're yeah. like, I like I, 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 cocaine no i won't do cocaine no i won't do heroin you know what i will do i'm addicted to 17th century bibles i need to grind them up and snort them like that's (laughs) and they have (laughs) um wild real in reality some of the rarest and most valuable bibles historic bibles in the world in existence i get thinking it's really cool to own a piece of history, to old, to own some old stuff. Um, I have a couple hundred percent for Hiles pins sitting in my office, and I think that's really cool. It's a piece of that history. But I, I get wanting to own history. There are any number of artifacts throughout history that I would probably buy if I had the money to afford them and keep them on my desk. I get it. But the when you look at the scale to which Hobby Lobby and the Green Collection have acquired these antiquities, and when you look at they absol- the fact that they absolutely know that now, at least, <laughs> that their methods of acquiring these things are unethical, what would drive you to keep on acquiring what what would make you want to have the 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 green collection one of the things that they have is uh one of the oldest and most valuable torah scrolls in the world but they don't display it in the museum of the bible why i i get why you would want to own this stuff i do i get why you would want to have a museum to display this stuff what I don't get is why you would want to keep on collecting more than you could ever display in a museum and have items that are worth millions of dollars just in a Hobby Lobby warehouse in Texas or Florida or Oklahoma or wherever. On a more serious note, I, I think this episode really illustrates some of the reasons that people hate corporate personhood and what has become of Citizens United. Hobby Lobby, as a company owned by one family, operates in the United States without any explicit political power. But clearly, the company operates as an extremely politically influential person might. On paper, the company has no political power. It's just a company. But in reality, the company does wield 
political power. I feel like we're just scratching the surface and maybe it's the conspiracy theorist in me that is prone to peek their little head out at any moment. But I really wonder if there's more that we just don't know about yet. Oh, I'm sure that there is. Because like, I mean, we've had, we've seen a few skeletons that have gotten out of the closet, but I have no doubt that there are a lot more. I feel like the klept, like the, the need to hoard biblical artifacts and the need to possess $13 billion is somehow related. Re- like, yeah, I feel mm-hmm. like those things are related. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I feel like if after I got to like a certain amount of money, I would just stop giving a f- and I would just give all my like, and I would just be like, whatever, have more. But that's me. Like, I, I don't know. Like how much f- money does a person need? How many houses does a person need? Like once you have a certain amount, like what are you even gonna? You know what? I'll make you a deal. If I ever have more than two houses, you can call me out and tell me to cut it out. Yeah, so what, like a regular house and then like maybe a cabin in the woods for your... Like a, like a regular house and a cabin or a regular house and a beach house or a regular house and a house near family members or something like that. A regular house and like a... a how about timeshares? Are we talking timeshares here? Like a- no, timeshares don't count, but I wouldn't <laughs> buy a timeshare anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what, what if you have like a, a house and then like a houseboat? Or like a house. That counts. And like, house and houseboat counts. If I ever try to go over two, you can't let me do it. House, houseboat, RV. RV does not count as a house. RV doesn't. Okay. Uh, See, what I am, what I am telling you is that if I ever actually had a lot of money, I would start making rules for myself because I like rules and following yeah. them. If this is the end of the episode for today. But I have a very strong feeling that we'll come back to the smuggled, fake, and unethical biblical antiquities bit at some point in the future. <laughs> I, I hope we do. Uh, thank you guys for tuning into this episode. This has been the Leaving Eden Podcast. Leaving Eden Podcast is findable on social media at Leaving Eden Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and on threads. You can follow me on social media uh, at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N on also Facebook, Instagram, and threads. Sadie, your socials? You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye bye. No confusion